I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the third chapter of Luke's Gospel, where we'll pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. We were there where John the Baptist was calling people to repentance at the Jordan River. We talked a bit about the, the, the darkness of John's day and, and the, the political and religious atmosphere that he was preaching in. It was a very dark time, and yet John had come to share the light, to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. And we will see now in today's text how John will have the opportunity to baptize the Messiah as he comes as the forerunner and as now the ministry of Jesus will begin. And so we're going to look this Lord today at the uh, next part of Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to this morning, I want to invite you to stand together as I read today's passage for us. And this is what God's word says. This is what Dr. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will, be, will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you inspired a, a Gentile doctor named Luke to write down his orderly account to a man named Theophilus, an account that you would then use throughout the history of the church up until this day and will continue to use until the return of Christ, that we might learn, that we might grow in our understanding of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we might be challenged from the, the words of this prophetic preacher, John the Baptist, who has gone home to heaven long before our gathering today, and yet his word still speaks because it's your word. So help us to learn from your word today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When 18... 67, Pastor Charles Spurgeon was preparing to preach. Some of you may know Spurgeon's name. He's 
referred to as the Prince of Preachers. God used his ministry greatly, but, but during this time, this day, on this particular date, he was preparing to preach in a different location. His church had grown to the point that they needed to expand the facility. They had as many as six to 12,000 people coming out to hear him preach. They couldn't hold them all, and so uh, for a few months there in London, they rented an agricultural hall that could seat some 12,000 people uh, in order that he could preach there while the renovations were being done on their church. And so in preparation for this preaching, in preparation for these thousands, he went on a particular day there to the facility. His workers had been in there and had been preparing it in order to test out the acoustics. And no one was in the building. He felt it was empty, and so he, he climbed up on the newly built stage. He entered into the, the pulpit there, and he simply quoted from John's Gospel, the first chapter, verse 29, to this empty room. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, he spoke this into an empty room, but in God's providence, the room wasn't entirely empty. Up in the rafters, there was a worker who had been there preparing the building for Spurgeon's preaching. And upon hearing this one verse, this one sentence, he was immediately convicted of his sin, drawn to repentance, and he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus. A one-sentence sermon brought this man to faith and repentance. Now, I'm praying for your faith and repentance today, but I'll let you know it's going to be more than one sentence a bit longer. But that's all it took because this was the inspired word of God. This was the word recorded in John's gospel that was spoken by John the Baptist. This was a sermon that was preached long before Spurgeon preached it in that empty room. It was a Spurgeon. It was a sermon that was preached by this Old Testament prophet by this man named John, a man who looked in appearance far differently than the religious leaders of his day, and yet a man who was used by God to call people to faith and repentance. He was used to prepare the way for our Lord Jesus. That one sentence, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, Luke doesn't record that sentence in his gospel account. We find that in John's account, but Luke very much records for us the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, we can gather from today's passage what many of John's sermons likely entailed because he clearly communicated three things that I want us to look at today. He communicated that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is worthy, and that Jesus is indeed the only way. That was his message, and that is our message this morning. And so I want us to, to walk through this message and to see what we learn about these three points from what Luke records for us from the ministry of John the Baptist. So we'll begin there with that first point. I'll put it in your outline as well. Point one, Jesus is greater. Now, we begin in our passage here learning that as John's influence and as his ministry grew, there were many people coming out there to the Jordan River. There were Jews and Gentiles coming. They, they wanted to hear the words of this one who came uh, speaking as if he was speaking from God himself. Because remember, there had been hundreds of years with no prophets. 
Hundreds of years where God's word had not been communicated to his people through his specially appointed prophets. And now we have one coming in the spirit of Elijah, one like an Old Testament prophet, who is coming there to the Jordan River, and he is sharing with the people this word from God. This word of preparation for the Messiah and many as they were coming to him and they were hearing this message, they began to ask among themselves or as Luke tells us, even just ask quietly in their own hearts, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? You know, Luke tells us here that, that these people, they were in expectation. They, they were wondering, they were waiting, they were longing for the Lord's Messiah. And now they hear this one calling people to repentance, speaking boldly the truth with, with no concern for his own well-being and safety. In fact, it is his message of repentance that will soon after this take him to prison and to lose his head. And this stood out to the people. So they were, they were asking themselves, could, could this be the one? I mean, again, consider everything about the Jewish faith at this point was pointing them towards the Messiah. Their, their, their annual festivals, their annual feasts, that Passover meal, every component of it was pointing them towards expectation that the Messiah was coming. Now, this is what they talked about around their dinner gatherings. This is what they talked about and prayed for during their times of worship. And now they're there, and they're seeing John the Baptist, and they're beginning to wonder, is this the one? we've been waiting for. Is this the one my father waited for, my father's father waited for? Is this the one that generations have been longing for and waiting for? Now, of course, as they're asking this question, they're neglecting to understand all that God had communicated to them in his word, because he said clearly that one would come before the Messiah, one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, one would come that would prepare the way for the Lord, and we see John very much is the fulfillment of that word that God had said. And so they come to John. Apparently, at one point, they're not just whispering this, saying it in their own hearts. At some point, they're saying it so that John can understand. They're asking if he's the Messiah, if he's the Lord's Christ. And notice how quick he is to, to dispel this and to make it very clear that, that, that Jesus, the Messiah, is so much greater than he is. In verse 16, he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is, who is mightier, greater, supreme, the one who's mightier than me is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says real clearly, I'm not the one. In fact, what does he say? He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Now, that, that may seem like a, an odd expression to us. I would imagine most of us in this room, at some point, we have untied or tied someone's shoes. Even last night, uh, Sandy and I were at Walmart in Bardstown, and as soon as we walked in, we saw in front of us this, this young couple, and they had their toddler, and he was scrambling all over the place, and they were trying to get him to settle in that cart, and about the time they did, off came a shoe. <laughs> and of course, mom and dad are busy doing other things, and so Sandy and I both were just smiling, remembering our kids and how they would kick off their shoes and kind of pointed the shoe out, and they grinned and picked it up, put it back on. 
if you're a parent in this room, you, you probably spent years of your life putting on shoes. And it comes full circle, by the way, because just the little one needed, the older ones needed as well, that help. And shortly after my surgery, I remember one of the things I couldn't do was bend over and put my shoes on. And my wife, bless her heart, would put on my shoes and take off my shoes. It, it, it's not something we necessarily see as is this, this great actor or even so demeaning in our context today. But there's a, there's a cultural significance to it here. You see, in, in John's day, it was well known that, that students of teachers, that they didn't pay their teacher, they didn't pay some sort of tuition, but they essentially became servants to their teacher. And so teachers would gather for themselves students, and then these students became the servants. They would do anything the teacher needed. That They would prepare meals for the teacher, they would clean for the teacher, they would take care of whatever it was the teacher needed so that they could focus their attention, their efforts, their times on teaching. But in that day and age, the, the one thing that a student would never do, in fact, it was almost a forbidden thing, was, was untie the sandal of a teacher. And in fact, we can even read about this historically. According to one ancient rabbi I read just this week, he said this, every service which a slave performs for his master, he's speaking here of that student-teacher relationship, shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of a sandal. Well, why is that? Well, you can imagine in John's day, there's no public sanitation. There's no trash collection. Everyone walked everywhere through everything. And a sandal was nasty. It was the extreme end of uncleanliness. And so it was not expected. It wasn't even really fitting for someone to untie the sandal of another. And so what, what John is communicating here, when he says he, he's not worthy of untying the, the teacher, the master, the Messiah's sandal. He's not so much making a comment about his unworth. He's making a comment about Jesus's supreme worth. He's saying he, he's so much greater. He's so much better. He's so much mightier. How, how can you even compare me to him? He's saying to those who had gathered around him for his message, his proclamation. If you, if you think I'm the Messiah, friend, you're mistaken because, because he far surpasses me. He is so much greater. Now, there's something for us to learn here about John's humility and about his exaltation of Jesus. Because what, what we see so often in our lives today, what we see so often in the church today is is we really lower our understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, and we really exalt who we are, don't we? When we center things so often around ourselves, not, not around the Lord's Messiah. Here John is saying we, we need to rebalance those scales a bit. Well, we need to understand that Jesus is greater. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is worthy of our lives and worthy of our worship. Jesus' word is far superior to our thoughts, our hearts, our feelings, the words of any other. Jesus is 
greater in every way. And we see this in John's ministry. Here John is preparing the way. Jesus is the way. John is calling people to repentance. Jesus will enable the people to repent. He'll he'll give people a, a new heart. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That Spirit will fill and empower so that now you and I might walk a life of repentance. Jesus is entirely greater, John says. He says, I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here, John was calling people to repent and be cleansed. That's what water symbolized. That's what that water baptism symbolized. I talked about this last Lord's Day for the the Gentiles, to come into the Jewish faith. There was a a ritual cleaning. Even in the Jewish faith, we can read about the the high priests before they could enter into the holy place. They they went through a ritual cleaning. There was this water cleansing for God's people, and this baptism was symbolic of this cleansing that needed to take place. But, But what John offered was entirely external. He said what Jesus offers is so much greater because it's entirely internal. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's saying Jesus, the Messiah, is going to change hearts. He's going to fulfill the Old Testament prophets who said we need a new heart, a clean heart. And so while water baptism is this outward sign, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. That's why we, we, we do this today still in the life of the church. We experience water baptism as Baptists because it's symbolic of an internal work that Jesus has done in our lives already through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the scripture is clear about what the Spirit does. The Spirit is the one that regenerates us, who, who, who brings us to life, who breathes life into us. The Spirit adopts us so that we might be children of God. The Spirit sanctifies us, making us holy like Christ. The Spirit seals us so that we might persevere in our faith until the day of redemption. The Spirit fills us, empowers us so that we might minister in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all this work of the Spirit takes place from the very moment of salvation. Now, John here is not indicating that somehow there's going to be two baptisms that will experience a, a water baptism and later a, a spirit baptism. No, for the, the New Testament follower of Jesus, this is all instantaneous. The Spirit's work when we're redeemed is a work of empowering, cleansing, sanctifying, and empowering us to walk in the Christian life. The Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. When we experience this water baptism, it is symbolic of an outward, an outward symbol of an inward reality that's already taken place in the life of the believer. And so, for us today, we we are baptized in the Spirit at that moment of belief, because it is only through the Spirit that we might believe. John says that that Jesus would do this. He, He speaks of fire here, and I believe this fire is a reference to what we read earlier in Acts chapter 2. It's a reference to the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus in his earthly ministry said that, that, that one would come, speaking the Holy Spirit, who would be a counselor and would teach and would empower. He would empower his disciples to be his, his witnesses. And then we see in Acts chapter 2, the counselor, the teacher, the helper, the Spirit coming and empowering his people so that now we, as New Testament believers, we are 
filled from that day of redemption with the Holy Spirit. God, like he did in the Old Testament with offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, he, he would fill with his spirit temporarily. But now we are filled with the spirit from that day we're saved. We see this clearly throughout God's word. And so we see specifically this reference to fire then in Acts chapter 2 as is, is the Spirit descends like fire on his disciples. But there's another reference to fire that John makes in verse 17, and I, I think that's referring to a, a different fire. Let's notice what he says here in 17. He, speaking of the Messiah of Jesus, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That this, I believe, is a fire of judgment. And there's a clear picture here that we see in other places in God's word where we have the picture of the Messiah, of the coming Lord with this, this winnowing fork. It's a reference to, to what... Most of these bystanders would have been well familiar with. It was a process. They would go through at harvest time. They would take this winnowing fork into the wheat. They would throw the wheat up in the air. The shaft would separate from the wheat. And then they would take the wheat. They would gather it. They'd put it in the barn because that was what was good, what they needed. The, the chaff, that external husk, it was worthless. They would gather it together, that that wasn't already just blown away, and they would burn it. We see here a, a reference to the, the coming judgment of Christ. Where we see clearly in the scripture this picture that there are some who would believe, some who would not, some who will repent, some who will not. And for those who will not repent and trust in the Lord's Messiah, there is a coming judgment of God's wrath. Friends, what John is saying is that, that he's just the messenger and he's just preparing the way and, and, and Jesus is so much entirely greater. He is the one who will save. He is the one who will forgive. But he's also making it clear in his greatness, he is the one who will judge. John is warning of a coming judgment. Jesus is the coming judge. And we live in a day and an age where people, they'll, they'll adore him as a baby in a manger. But they want nothing of Christ the judge. Maybe you don't either. Now maybe you're fine with the Christmas cards and the pictures of the manger and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Well, that, that's just an easy message. That feels good to the ears. But what about the coming judge? What about the judgment of Christ? What about when Jesus calls out our sin and calls us to repentance? What about when he takes that winnowing fork in your life and in mine and exposes that which needs to be burned away that we are desperately holding on to? This fire that John speaks of, there, there's a cleansing fire that is grace and mercy that brings redemption, but there is a fire of judgment that is coming for those who will not trust in Christ and repent. He is greater, John says. And that is a message that encourages us. That is a message that warns us. John says, not just greater, point two, he says, Jesus then is worthy. 
Remember, John says he, he's not worthy to even untie the sandals of Jesus, but Jesus, he is entirely worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of everything. Verse 18, Luke says to us that with many other exhortations, this is one word that is describing the ministry of proclamation of John, whereby John is telling people about the grace and the goodness of God, and he is also warning them about the wrath of God. He is not afraid to call people out in their sin. And it's not just the average bystander by the Jordan River that he's calling into account. He's calling out the highest officers and officials of his day in their sin. Luke says with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. Good news. Now, when, when John preached about the, the cleansing work of the coming Messiah, when he talked about that, that cleansing fire, well, well, that, I would imagine to us, sounds like good news because it's a, it's a message of forgiveness. And forgiveness is a good thing. We, we all want forgiveness. Unbelieving people want forgiveness. I mean, you think about it. Maybe you're not paying attention and you find yourself going a little faster than you should go, and then you see those blue lights in your rearview mirror, and from the time that you're pulled over until that officer asks you to roll down the window, what are you hoping for? I really hope that doesn't book at me today. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have been speeding. In fact, I'm going to tell them right now about every other time I sped, so maybe they'll just give me tickets for every single time I've done this. Is that what's going through your head? What are you thinking? You're honest. Oh, Lord, please. I really hope I get a warning. Which is what? I really hope they forgive me. If you're married in this room, chances are you have said something foolish and ignorant to your spouse. And when you did that, as you wished you could reach out and grab those words back, what were you hoping for? You know, I hope that they remember every other time I've said something foolish and ignorant. You know, we probably should sit down right now and go through a list of every wrong thing I've done to them. Now, what are you, you hoping? You're, you're wanting forgiveness. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it that way. I'm sorry. Can, can you just forgive me? You want forgiveness. Somebody shows up at your house this week and they say, listen, we, uh, we know this sounds a little bit out of the ordinary, but we represent a foundation and we've been looking through uh, your financial records and we realize you've got quite a bit of debt. We see your mortgage here, your car payment here, and I know this sounds out of the ordinary, but we have a benevolent donor who says they want to just pay it all off for you. No strings attached. You're you going to look at that person, if it's sincere, if it's real somehow, and say, no, I'm good, I'll, I'll handle it from here. No, chances are you're going, that, that'd be wonderful. I'll take that. We all want forgiveness. We all want forgiveness of the things we've done wrong, the things we've said wrong, that the debt of our sin, which is entirely weighty, we want to be forgiven. And when John comes and says, here's the way, God has made a way for you and I to be forgiven. When John says that in his day, it is a resounding message of good news. 
It's the good news of the gospel that we can be forgiven. But Luke here reminds us that's not the only part of the good news because there's also the good news of the coming wrath. That, that, that is good news as well. That, that John's warning about this wrath to come, about Christ with this winnowing forth, that, that's good news too. Well, how is that good news? That judgment is coming, that wrath is coming. Friends, it's good news because we are being warned. If your house is on fire tonight, and you're sleeping through it, and I drive by your house, and I see that it's on fire, and I know somehow that you're home, and I suppose that you're asleep. What, what's the greatest thing I can do for you? What's the most loving thing I can do for you? Take your plants off your front porch, make sure they don't get singed. Maybe I notice your car's really close to your house, and I think, oh man, that, that fire's going to mess their car up. I wonder if I can find their keys and move their car for them. No, what's the most loving thing I can do? Wake you up! Shake you until you become alert and say, there is a fire, you're going to die, let me get you out of the harm's way. How foolish would it be if that were to take place in your life and in mine and for us to say, I'm really tired right now. <laughs> could, could you just leave me alone and let me go back to sleep? Friends, we live in a day, in an age where people are sleeping their way through a burning fire. And God in His goodness, His grace, and His providence, we're, we're right there and we're driving by and He has called us not to take their plants off their porch, not to move their car out of the way, but to wake them up that they might be saved from the fire. John says clearly, the fire is coming. The fire is here. And this is good news. Because God has provided a way for us to escape the fire. He's provided an evacuation route. And His name is Jesus. Friend, do you know Him today? That's what John's saying here. He's saying He, he is greater and He is so worthy. He is worthy of us getting out of the bed and getting out of the way and putting our trust and our hope in Him. He is, he is worthy of us laying down our lives that other people might be saved. And notice that's exactly what John the Baptist does here. He is willing to lay down his life for this message and to proclaim it. Luke tells us, verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch, we talked about Herod and his wickedness last week. He had reproved him for Herodias. We'll, we'll talk more about this when we get to Luke, I believe it's chapter 7. But, but again, just in summary, what we have here is Herod had an affair with his brother Philip's wife. He then disposed of his own wife, convinced her to leave his brother so that they might enter into this immoral, adulterous relationship now with his sister-in-law, who history tells us was also his niece, by the way. Wickedness upon wickedness. And John doesn't look at this and say, well, I don't want to offend Herod. 
I mean, you know, Herod's, he, he's been kind of nice to the Jewish people. Uh, the temple's never had as many people coming to it as, as it did in other administrations. Herod, Herod seems to be on our side. Yeah, we, we know he's got some sketchy things in his past, but don't we all have sketchy things in our past? No, John's not sitting around trying to convince people. You know, God used David. I'm sure he can use Herod. No, he is willing to stand before the, the highest official of his day and say to him clearly, Sir, you are a sinner and you need to repent. And it cost him everything to do this. He could have easily convinced himself, well, there's lots of other people that need saving. There's lots of other people that need repentance. I'll just focus my message on the less threatening opportunities. No, God pausing to proclaim this message, this fire cleansing and fire of judgment that is coming. He does this, and it will indeed cost him his head. But friends, the message here is that Jesus is entirely worthy of this. Jesus, Jesus is worthy of your life and my life. In fact, the call to follow Christ is a call to die. Luke will record later. We'll get to this eventually. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus saying this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Well, you hear that, and you go, well, what does that look like, Jesus? So he tells us, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Friends, there's nothing worthy of our lives other than Jesus. He is entirely worthy of everything in your life and everything in my life. He is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our wealth. He is worthy of every second of every day. And he calls us to lay down our lives for his, for his glory, for his message, for this call of repentance. And yet it is easy for us to waste our time, our efforts, our attention on so many other things. We too need to wake up. John says Jesus is greater. He is worthy. And then third and final point three, he says Jesus is the only way. Verse 21, Luke records that after telling us uh, that John was put in prison for sharing the good news of the gospel, he, he then kind of goes back and, and recounts. He kind of overviews the ministry of John. So he he's told us what happened, and now he's going back and saying, now when, when all the people were baptized, that Jesus was also baptized. Now we read more about Jesus' baptism in the other gospel accounts. We have more detail there from the other three than we do from this one, but, but what Luke seems to want us to understand here is there's a, a distinction in the baptism of Jesus. He doesn't say that lumped in with all others is Jesus. He says, well, when, when all those other people were baptized, all these sinners in need of repentance, there was one baptized who was not a sinner and needed no repentance. And so if Jesus is not a sinner and needs no repentance, why then does he respond to John's water baptism that was a baptism of repentance? 
Well, Matthew's gospel tells us that, that John himself asked this very question. That when Jesus comes to be baptized, John is a bit bewildered about this because he's, he's calling people to repentance. He, he is the one, again, remember, he proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows this is the sinless Savior, the coming Messiah. He is preparing the way for him. And yet here is Jesus entering into the waters of baptism to be baptized by John. And John says, well, why? And Jesus tells him that this is to fulfill all righteousness. And there are many facets of that, but I think one of them is that what Christ is doing in this baptism that John is offering, this baptism of repentance for sinners, is that Jesus is identifying himself with sinners who need to repent. He's the sinless Son of God. He, he has no sin to repent of, but He came to save those who need repentance. He identifies with us. Remember who He is. Emmanuel, God with us. Born by humble, humble means. In the incarnation, He, he, he comes to us here in the waters Baptism, he, he comes to us and he identifies with us. And what do we do when we're baptized? We identify with him. Well, we identify with the cleansing work of the gospel. We, we are buried with Christ in baptism. We are raised to walk in a new life in Christ. We, we identify with his death, his burial, his resurrection. We are put under that water in his death. We are experiencing symbolically that cleansing work of the gospel. We are then raised and identify with his resurrection when we come out of that water that we might walk in a new life, not in our efforts, our power, our vows, but in Christ. He takes our sin that we might receive his righteousness. We see Jesus was not baptized because he was a sinner. He was baptized because we're sinners. He had no sin to repent of, but he identifies with us in our sin. And friends, he's the only one that can do this. In fact, Luke goes on to record that when Jesus was baptized, heaven opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in a form of a dove, and God the Father spoke, saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What we see in this declaration from the Father to the Son, along with the work of the Holy Spirit, we, we see our triune God at work, and we see that Christ is the only one who can do this. Because He, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He, fully God and fully man, went to the cross and died in your place and in mine, he, fully God and fully man, was raised from the dead on the third day. And he, fully God and fully man, is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. He is greater, he is worthy, and he is the only way to God. Buddha didn't die in your place. Confucius did not offer the perfect sacrifice for your sin. Joseph Smith is not the way. The 30 million gods of Hinduism are not the way. Christ and Christ alone is the way. He is greater. He is worthy. And he calls you and I to lay down our lives and follow him. Have you? 
Will you? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The question for us today is, Jesus, the way you've trusted him, is he the truth you've listened to? Is he the life that now you are living in? And if not, friends, then the call today for you and I is to repent, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I pray your trust will be in him. If you would stand together as we now give an opportunity to respond to God's word.